0: This is Steve Stein and you're listening to Inside Asia. Welcome back. A week has passed since my discussion with Jim McGregor. In the wake of the creeping coronavirus, we discussed China's prospects in 2020. A lot can happen in a week. We're rushing this episode out to you as a precautionary tale. On Saturday, February 8th, deaths attributed to the coronavirus surpassed those from the SARS outbreak in 2002, 2003. It's the speed of the spread of this disease that's cause for the greatest concern. Data shows that it took just 20 days compared to 80 for SARS to result in 800 deaths. But data can be misleading. Because the infectious footprint of the coronavirus is much larger than SARS with the Chinese city of Wuhan at the epicenter, it feels precarious. For now at least, the mortality rate as a percentage of those infected is much lower compared to SARS. That's the good news. The bad news is that no one knows how many cases are going undetected. Against this backdrop, I received a message from Ben Rolfe. He was texting from an isolation room in Singapore's National Center for Infectious Diseases, suspected of contracting the coronavirus. Ben is one of a handful of experts in the region who track and tackle infectious disease. Regular listeners may recall our conversation from last November. In that episode, entitled Asian Contagion, Ben celebrated the dramatic reduction in malaria across the region, but also raised concerns about other forms of infectious disease, provoked in part by rapid urbanization, limited healthcare budgets, and poor planning. Finding himself on the front lines of an epidemic surrounded by healthcare workers in biohazard suits has given Ben a rare, albeit unwanted, perspective, and the conversation that follows is a warning to us all. I'm here by phone with Ben Rolfe, who is the CEO of the Asia-Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance, and he's in an interesting place at an interesting moment. Ben, thanks for joining us. Where are you right now? Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your current circumstances?
1: Well, I'm um, in, a, in a very well-appointed uh, private room on the eighth floor of the National Centre for Infectious Diseases um, in Singapore. Um, unfortunately, the door only opens from the outside. So I'm quarantined at the moment, um, just being monitored for potential exposure to um, the novel coronavirus. Um, so I've been here now for uh, just over 24 hours and uh, had a series of tests, should get the second result back uh, later today, um, but it's been certainly an interesting experience, particularly given my background in infectious diseases.
0: Yeah, Ben, how did you end up there? What happened?
1: Well, I took a, a short vacation in Thailand, um, where I came into contact with a, a number of Chinese nationals uh, before the Wuhan travel ban, I then came back and started getting flu symptoms. And you know, I was thinking, well, I should err oh, on the side of caution. And, uh, just, just get it checked out. So I went to the, the National Center and, uh, was immediately, um, uh, put in a, a, a quite interesting infection control, um, uh, situation. So the way they manage it is that people are put in a queue with one meter spacing apart and you stand on a, a cross painted on the floor. And as you advance, you go through different testing and, uh, stations. And I guess I was there for about five hours as I was kind of assessed. And eventually they decided to quarantine me for a few days out a caution. So uh, transferred me up to this uh, little isolation suite here.
0: So, so when you're being processed and they've got you lined up, um, are there any, um, are, you, are you in a mask or are others uh, moving around you? H- how do you protect one from the other?
1: I have to say it is extraordinary, the professionalism and the uh, quality of the infection control measures that Singapore has in place. So um, all the staff are in full, people have seen from Ebola documentaries, etc. People are in masks, gowns, caps, uh, gloves. Um, All of the people seeking screening are wearing masks and kept separated from each other. Um, After anybody sits down, that chair is immediately disinfected. Um, As you're waiting, you're put in spaced apart chairs with a desk. Each desk has a bottle of water. They brought me a meal um, and everything disinfected after you've touched it. So it's incredibly humane, professional and incredibly impressive. Uh, And a big change from what we saw in SARS in 2003, where many of the infections were actually hospital spread Infections. Um, Singapore and hopefully the reservation and a lot um, practices are streets ahead of where they were in 2003.
0: So, so Ben, what would compel somebody to say, I'm going to go to the infectious disease center because I have a cough? I mean, you know what's at stake because it's your profession, it's, it's your area of expertise. But, you know, the average person is going to say the last thing I want to do is throw myself in harm's way and be in a center where uh, I may be uh, put in isolation or, or even worse, contract something while they are being screened. W- what would you say to people who are thinking that
1: way? Well, you know, fortunately, at the moment, we don't have generalised community transmission uh, outside of China. And so at any one time, there'll be plenty of people who've got a cold, mild influenza. And uh, you know, generally, I would imagine those people would would just treat it symptomatically at home. Uh, the, the real risk factor is whether people believe they've had exposure to somebody who uh, may have either come from uh, an area where there's a high rate of infection, like we have, um, or in my case, been around people uh, from that province and uh, potentially exposed. I was playing with children and, and, and sharing a swimming pool with people. So my thought process was that there's a reasonable chance that there were someone who was infected, that I could have got infected, and that did the incubation period is, you know, we don't know exactly, but somewhere around, um, maybe three to 14 days. I kind of fit within that time window, so I thought I would better get myself checked out. Yeah. That was my thought process.
0: So this is this is the knowledge you have that allowed you to make the right choice. But I guess uh, in your in your uh, estimation, do you think the government uh, or even WHO or other are are disseminating information effectively enough for people to know what to do and when to do it?
1: I would hope so. I mean, obviously, my perception is a bit skewed, because I take a special interest. But you know, I've signed up to the government's WhatsApp uh, alert service service, which is very efficient. I get WhatsApp updates from the government, which are available to anybody twice a day. Um, Most workplaces seem to be communicating risks to people. I've seen many offices are screening people for an elevated temperature. Um, Airports certainly are doing a very good job of screening. So my sense is that the information is pretty good and the response is extremely professional. Um, Whether that's the case elsewhere, of course, we don't know. And of course, the risk now is if the virus starts sustained community transmission in countries that don't have the kind of infrastructure, both in terms of communications and response that Singapore has, Mm. um, then then that could be a much more worrying scenario. But so far, I think Singapore is doing a fantastic job.
0: You know, I got to say, I, I applaud you for your odds on this one, because if you look at the numbers, and I'm looking at the uh, WHO cor- uh, coronavirus uh, um, kind of heat map here that shows you know the incidence and the growth day to day. And I guess China right now, the number has exceeded 28,000. Um, all of 28,000 are in China. And then you have a dramatic drop uh, after China is Singapore with 30 Uh, confirmed cases. Uh, Japan, 25. Thailand, 25. So the fact that you are one of 30 sitting in detention right now is uh, an incredible thing. So luck of the draw, I guess, right?
1: Uh, Well, let me clarify that. So the, the figures that you've got are confirmed cases. So not people who are quarantined, they're under observation. And of course, there are probably thousands of people now who are staying at home deliberately or have been asked to stay at home by the government. And they're not counted in these figures. And I think that's the really critical point of where we are in this epidemic at the moment is that we don't know enough about the epidemic to know whether this is a virulent strain which is infecting people who are getting extremely symptomatic, extremely sick, definitely showing up to hospital, which means that the 30,000 infections, confirmed infections that we've seen may be roughly around how many people are truly infected because they're all being picked up by hospitals. Or is this a... A, a much less virulent strain and we are only seeing the more severe cases and many people are just experiencing this immunity getting rid of their own accord. We don't know that. We will know in five or ten days as we see the trajectory of, of the epidemiology but the big unknown at the moment is are we only seeing 10% of the cases the 10% that is sick enough or motivated enough to seek testing and, um, and care in a hospital. That's the big unknown at the moment.
0: Well, you've raised a really interesting point, which is, you're right, statistically, these are the ones that have been confirmed. Um, as contagious diseases and epidemics go, typically, what percentage are detected versus uh, lurking?
1: Oh, it's so specific. Um, and I should add, it's not really my area of expertise, so so I wouldn't want to speculate. From what I see is, I guess, a relatively informed layperson that gets into the really technical aspects of this um, epidemic, it seems... That, um, the, the what we call the basic reproductive uh, rate is probably somewhere between two and three. That's that every infected person is transmitting the disease to two or three other people. There's massively less than you would see, for example, with measles, where, um, because uh, measles is such an effective spreader, it is aerosol transmission uh, that can get up to about 40 people infected by every one person. So, the level of transmissibility of this. Um strain seems uh, relatively uh, modest um, but it's the case fatality rate which we don't really know and that will be a key factor. How many people ultimately die once they get infected with, with, with this illness? People speculate again maybe around 2.5%. Um, I was able to speak with some medical staff here today who said that was probably about right. Um, but it's uh, it's pure speculation at the moment because, of course, of those 31,000 infections, most of those are still sick, and, of course, we don't know what the ultimate outcome for, for those people will be, which means that the 360 deaths we've seen uh, could be all we'll see, uh, unlikely, or it could be a tip of an iceberg. We, we don't know, but we, we will know in the next two weeks.
0: Ben um, just for the listeners, I mean y- your test did come back negative uh you're okay. they're going to hold you for another couple of days um so <laughs> i'm I'm sure you're relieved um what what is the ratio of people that have basically screened and released does this does the government provide that that information?
1: No, and there'd be a question of, of how meaningful that is because this is a, a sliding scale you know, there are people who have been asked to stay at home uh for fourteen days. there have been people who've been told to stay at home there are people who've been um admitted for um uh quarantined observation. Uh, and so there's a whole there's a whole spectrum. But it, it in a sense is not a very useful indicator. Uh, and you know what we really need to know is is how many confirmed cases. And then ideally we need to have very good visibility over symptoms in the community. So if we can see how many people are Googling the word influenza or Googling that I have a temperature, what should I do? Um of uh, paracetamol, etc. cetera. Um, and also, I think more importantly, you can use central surveillance. You can do telephone surveys to find out, you know, do you or anything in your family have been But there. You know, there are ways in which um, you can get pretty good intel on what's happening in the broader community. And generally, my understanding is that the recommendation is that in the early stage of a uh, but I of in an outbreak like this, people are mostly focused on the confirmed cases. As the epidemic gets more widespread, and so that the system changes slightly to be able to pick up what's happening in the broader community
0: more more well, yeah, I want to go back to what you said about the number of people who are keying in the word infectious disease or coronavirus. I mean, is there any way of leveraging, um, the search engines that are out there and available to help track and trace what the probability or, 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 or potential might be on this? Is anybody thinking about the application of an AI algorithm to then, you know, create a view in terms of where the concentration should be, where, uh, government healthcare services, uh, should basically be setting up preventive measures?
1: Uh, so yes, um, there are a number of groups working with Google and others um, who, for a long time, have been looking at this kind of use of big data for surveillance. Again, it's not my field, so I am rather speculating as a layperson rather than an expert. But my guess would be that, given the um, the level of public awareness that this has, of course, it's led to panic buying of masks, uh, panic buying of hand washing solution. Um, it would be very difficult to disaggregate what is due to the curiosity and a lot of Googling and stuff that must be happening versus people that are doing it because they're unwell. Yes. There are methods, however, where you can do active sampling, of, of, as I say, telephone surveys and uh, better reporting from general practitioners. So there's a sense of how many people are presenting with respiratory infections, et cetera. And uh, I'm, I've no doubt that's uh, something that um, is, is not underway already, it will be underway soon. It's part of the WHO guidance, which is very clear. And a huge amount has been learned since uh, SARS, a huge amount.
0: Ben, ben, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, just watching um, as you are from your bed, um, you know, probably looking at the news feeds and getting the insights from some of your contacts and others. What's your take on, on how effective China has been in handling this particular crisis?
1: Well, you're right. There's some time to reflect. Uh, um, there's not much in this room. And on the one side, I have a nice view of a hospital. And on the other side, um, people wandering around in full p- uh, protective equipment and with masks in their names um, scrawled across their fronts. So um, I have been reflecting and on, 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 on kind of looking at my networks and, and getting a sense of what's going on but I certainly am not able to comment on what's happening in China or the response in China. I just don't have any information. Yeah. I mean, what what I think is is really important to understand is we are at the early stages of this outbreak, and the experts that I really trust um, are also the people that are saying there is a lot we don't know. You know, in a sense, the less speculation that they do know. It seems that there's some ongoing community transmission outside of China. It is very limited the experts seem to agree that there is still a potential to contain it, but it is also possible that this will turn into a pandemic. If it turns into a pandemic, it's really anyone's guess exactly what the trajectory of that pandemic uh, might be. Of course, we have a, a larger population that are naive to the infection. There's no natural immunity necessarily. Um, but similarly, you find that the diseases will mutate to become less virulent because if they kill people too quickly, the, the disease doesn't spread it effectively. So it's a very dynamic and complex situation. And as I say, you know, the, 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 the professionals that I respect most are those that firstly disclose their lack of expertise in specific areas. Now I want to be very clear. If I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist. But secondly, express uncertainty and just say, well, A could happen, B could happen. This is a range of possibilities, and this is where we'll melt. And I think that's the, the
0: most responsible course of action at this point. Well, well, let me ask this a little differently. Uh, based on both your direct and indirect experience, what are your leading concerns? I mean, how do these uh, situations tend to pan out? Uh, and, and are there things that you would be looking for as a professional in this area um, um, that would could guide uh, our thinking about what comes next?
1: So firstly, I think communications is as important as the, the kind of hard health systems response. I and mean, there's a lot of focus on you know, infection control and hospital capacity and you know, leave has been cancelled for infections since doctors in Singapore quite rightly, people are working long hours and, you know, the, the, the kind of health systems response, which is very important. Communications is also really critical. And I think this is one area that Singapore has got right. And I wonder the extent to which other um, South East Asian countries have, have followed the same. Um, you know, communicating people to avoid panic, communicating to encourage people to wash their hands frequently, um, and managing uh, travel and communications with areas where there's a lot of ongoing transmission like you have, are all very competent, uh, very, you know, important aspects. And I think communications is a really key, is a really key area. Um, in terms of the health system response, certainly as I mentioned, infection control here is outstanding. You're, you're, I've really seen the medical staff looking out for each other, where somebody's handling something that that may be risky, there's someone standing there watching to make sure they do it correctly. Um, so Singapore, I, I think, is a real example of a sort the of region. The real challenge will be if we start seeing community transmission in countries with much weaker health systems. Right. You know, there are countries um, in sub-Saharan Africa that spend, you know, maybe less than thirty dollars per person per year on health systems. Uh, you know, you compare that with You know, one and a half thousand, two thousand, three thousand um, that you get in more developed countries, and it's a different ballgame altogether. So, what we're hoping is that this can be contained and that we can prevent the spread uh, to countries with weaker health systems.
0: Yeah, and and, a little bit about just. the corporation. Uh, I mean, we. everyone uh, is, is focused as they should be on the public health risks associated with uh, what's happening in the region right now. But there's economic uh, downside as well. Um, people felt it dearly during the SARS episode and, and are very concerned that we may be setting ourselves up for a similar dip. Um, but co- companies um, have a responsibility as well, being large employers of, of, of individuals, many of whom are on the road, traveling, meeting, doing deals, whatever the case case may be, what can or should companies do to safeguard against infection in their organizations uh, and, and, and any advice that you might give?
1: Well, a couple of things spring to mind. I think, mean, firstly, um, communication with employees is really, really critical. Um, and supporting government in that consistent communication is really, really important, something that I've had to do with with, with our team here and uh, proud of the response from, from, from those folks. Uh, and generally try and make sure that company communications is aligned with the messaging. It's very important, consistent messaging, no confusion. Use of social media to support that communication. And then also debunking myths is also very important. If you uh, type in uh, NCOV 2019 into Twitter, it immediately takes you to the World Health Organization or to the Ministry of Health rather than you know, crazy conspiracy theorists. So communication is one thing. I think a lot of corporations are cutting down on travel, particularly uh, to mainland China and to areas where there's going transmission. That seems to be very sensible. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if we can save some CO2 emissions by getting people to use Skype rather than uh, travelling for meetings? I've seen, perhaps on the downside, a number of conferences are being cancelled and airlines are starting to feel the pinch. So you know, the economic uh, consequences are inevitably going to be quite significant. Um, but, you know, corporate actors, I think, can do a lot, um, certainly in communications. I guess that the second thing, and this speaks to issues that you know, and before have before, you know, looking after employees through health insurance and encouraging governments to strengthen their health systems, I mean, it's a much longer-term game. But, uh, you know, we can, where we have a world where there are countries that are spending less than $50 per capita on health systems, we cannot be surprised at when we see disease outbreaks that are hard to manage. Um, so there's a long-term game with this as well.
0: Yeah, I just wonder if like so many things, um, if, if this is a wake-up call for organizations who might have not taken this as seriously as they should have. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, you know, to the best of your knowledge, uh, do companies in the region have in place risk protocols for contending with, the, with these kinds of public health crises? Or is it just, uh, is it really, uh, it sounds to, to me like communications is the first and foremost what they can be doing, but then really having very precise, just like the hospital, the infectious disease center you're sitting in today, very precise in terms of what they do, how they do it, the order of, of screening and processing. You know, Should companies also be as diligent or have similar levels of, of compliance in order to make sure that when a crisis occurs, they know how to protect their employees?
1: Well, my guess is that many big corporations will have quite sophisticated models for disruptions to their supply chains or you know, things like changes in the oil price. And this is not my area at all, but my guess is that companies are well prepared for economic um, impact like oil prices and what that might mean uh, for their supply chains, procurement, etc. My again completely unsubstantiated guess would be that they are less able to predict the implications of uh, impact on their global supply chains, impacts on movements of people, uh, demand for certain products, ability of consumers to access certain products. So I, I, I do think that it's certainly in good practice for both governments and the private sector to have contingency plans and some models in place so they can game through these different scenarios and work out what the impact might be. Um, You know, we're already now seeing an impact on the oil price, impact on aviation, impact on conferencing. So the economic impacts from just the very early stages of this um, epidemic are already pretty clear. Um, The the, the difficult thing is there are so many unknowns and, uh, you know, even the professionals that do this stuff day in day out are still saying early days, and we really don't know whether this will become a contained outbreak, whether this will be a slowed uh, pandemic that through really good control measures will just spread very slowly, uh, giving us time to find vaccines and strengthen and capacity for response. Yeah, or could this be a Spanish flu style out- outbreak? I think that's less likely, but it's quite possible. We are really, the next few days, we are really on the cusp of knowing whether this will become. A global pandemic, um, or whether it will be contained.
0: You know, like all things, sometimes it takes a crisis to get people mobilized, and uh, maybe that's the silver lining on this one, that uh, as a result, as in uh, post-SARS, a lot of organizations, governments, others said we do have to think about this and do some planning and some budgeting accordingly. Um, Let's see what happens, Ben, and in the meantime, we wish you a quick recovery. Uh, I hope you're not there too much longer, and uh, uh, we do thank you for speaking with us on this time and in this place.
1: Thanks, Steve. I'm certainly looking forward to getting out and getting some fresh air. Um, But, uh, yeah, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks, Ben. All the best. That was my phone conversation with Ben Rolfe founding CEO of the Asia-Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance. Ben's frontline experience in combating contagious diseases in the region and his first-hand exposure to how a government like Singapore contends with an outbreak are both stark reminders of why it's important to remain vigilant. The number of sick, still growing, is no doubt a concern. Governments and public health care specialists have their role to play, but so do companies. The degree to which organizations are equipped to contend with potential pandemics is the subject of this week's Asia Insider Minute. That part of the program where I reflect on the conversation you just heard and pose a few additional questions of my own. We're all too familiar with the term digital disruption. For more than a decade, companies have been scrambling to digitally upgrade their operations, customer care, payments, you name it, all the while staving off attacks by next-gen disruptors encumbered by management hierarchies and legacy systems. Now try this term on for size, viral disruption. I'm not talking about your run-of-the-mill computer virus. I'm referring to the operational and financial consequences of a global pandemic. Like digital disruption, viral disruption will require quick response, contingency plans, nimble leadership, and an entirely new kind of risk management. Is anyone ready for this kind of crisis? I'm not entirely sure, but I suspect not. We've never seen anything like it before. And even if, God willing, the coronavirus dissipates, what are the takeaways? Will corporate boards flag the topic in their regular gatherings? Will executives weigh the probability of viral disruption as part of their annual planning process? Will they budget for it? Could organizations be blindsided if they don't? Is the coronavirus the John the Baptist of the new contagion? Is the big one just around the corner? How many of you remember Y2K, also referred to as the millennium bug? With the world's increased dependency on computing throughout the 1990s, it became apparent to some that formatting and storage of calendar data might fail to adjust when, at the stroke of midnight, the year 1999 became 2000. Everything from airport flight control systems to life-saving medical devices were embedded with time-sensitive data. Would the world go dark? Would we encounter a cataclysmic global shutdown? There was no shortage of speculation, and the IT industry didn't miss a trick when it came to peddling multimillion dollar IT assessments, software patches, and system backup services. When it was all said and done and the world didn't stop revolving, somewhere between US $200 to $600 billion had been spent just in case. Y2K was, in effect, the biggest digital threat we faced in the past quarter of a century. In hindsight, it looks like a fear-based spending spree, but at the time, it felt more like sound risk management. Viruses are different. They aren't digital, and even without the hype, they're far less predictable. No doubt we can expect a fair number of pharmaceutical firms to enter the fray, capitalize on fear, and flog an assortment of newfangled vaccines. But what about every other business owner, corporate giant, or government agency? Everyone has something to lose if precautions aren't devised to protect people's lives and safeguard economies. In the aftermath of the coronavirus, the way in which governments and companies respond should reveal to us just how seriously our institutions see pandemics as part of the new reality. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. I hope the conversation has left you better informed and less afraid. If you don't have time to listen, but want a quick synopsis of our discussion and links to what we feel are some of the more responsible and informed articles, reports, and insights on the subject, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. To subscribe, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, fill in your name and email, and start receiving your weekly update. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.